We thank you, God, that you saw us in our helpless estate. And you sent Jesus to shed his blood for us. That we might be forgiven and redeemed and saved. Help us as we look again at that sacrifice that was offered. May we honor you with how we hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series here where we're walking through the story of the Bible. So we've been looking at a bunch of Old Testament passages, um, seeing God's unfolding plan. Now, the story has taken a bunch of bad turns. If you've been here for the last three Sundays, uh, it's not that they've been bad sermons, I hope, but the, uh, the subject matter has been bad. We saw how earlier it started really well with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They lived in paradise with God. But through their sinful choice and the untold number of sinful choices that followed in the thousands of years to come, things had taken a bad direction. And let me just pause and ask you a question here. And this is a question that you would probably be asked if you were to take a psychology class in college. Basic question. Here it is. The human heart, is it basically good or evil? Now, as we look at our world, the history of our world, we look at people around us today, and as we look at our hearts, what would we say? How would we answer that question? Is the human heart basically good or evil? Well, some people might say that we're a mixture of both. I actually think that's a pretty decent answer. Other people would like to say, and I think we hear this in our day and age, some people would say the human heart is basically good. If if we would just train ourselves and, and get our heads on straight, we could figure this out and we could be good people. We could advance to the point where we could say that we are good. Yeah, there might be a few bad apples in the bunch, and you can't, you can't deny that. You watch the news, you read the newspaper, you see all sorts of horrible, terrible things. And some people will say, well, yeah, those are just the bad apples, but for the most part, we're good. Honestly, I don't buy that. I don't buy it. The consistent pattern of all human history shows us that we all are inclined to live for ourselves. The world tells us to listen to our hearts. Do we have any other uh, children of the 80s who remember the, the song by the pop rock group called Rock Set? They told us, they sang it out ballad style, listen to your heart. As if to say that if we just looked inside of us and, and listened to what our heart was telling us, that we would go in the right direction. Well, that's not what Scripture says. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, we all have heart disease. Now, physically speaking, heart disease is the number one cause of death in America, both for men and for women. So, so physically speaking, heart disease is a problem that leads to death. Well, spiritually speaking... Heart disease is something that we all had. And again, just think about Adam and Eve and their heart disease. They couldn't even obey one command. And as the story goes on from there, uh, we could give countless stories of, of the sin that we see in the Old Testament. You think about Israel, how they couldn't trust God to go into the promised land. Think about Solomon, how he was led to worship other gods and how Israel followed in his pattern. And maybe you think you're a little bit better uh, maybe you think you've figured it out, but let's, let's shine the light on our hearts for a little bit, and let's think about the Ten Commandments. You ever broken any of those? 
In the Ten Commandments, it says that uh, we're not supposed to steal. You ever stolen anything? Uh, it says we're not supposed to lie. Ever in your life told a lie? It also says we're not supposed to commit adultery. Uh, we're not supposed to kill. Now, you might think, well, I've never done either of those things. But remember, remember what Jesus said. He said that those sins of murder and adultery are things that can happen even in our hearts. So there's a vicious cycle in humanity, and it has everything to do with the wickedness of our hearts. And just like physically speaking, heart disease leads to death, spiritually speaking, that's where it leads as well. And it has to be that way. It's said very clearly in the book of Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we've all sinned and we've all earned a death penalty. We need a way out of this cycle. And what I hope you've seen so far from this sermon series that we're doing where we're walking through the Old Testament is that it's not just simply a matter of the people figuring it out. Israel kept falling into that sinful cycle and left to ourselves, we would keep falling in that sinful cycle as well. The human race needed a heart transplant. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's sermon as well as next Sunday's sermon. There was something wrong with the human heart and we needed God to step in and rescue us. There's actually two things that we needed. We needed forgiveness and we need a new heart. Um, a friend of mine this week, uh, we were talking about this, and he said that our hearts are like a broken compass. So I want you to picture yourself going on a camping trip, and you've got your map, and you've got your compass, and you're going to use your compass to get where you need to go. But you don't know that your compass is broken. And, and you could know perfectly well how to listen to your compass, but if your compass is broken and it's not pointing towards magnetic north, it is not going to lead you in the right direction. So Roxette was wrong when they said, listen to your heart, because our heart is like that broken compass, and it would lead us astray. As theologians have been saying for a very long time, the natural inclination of our hearts is not to look to God, but to look to ourselves, every single one of us. The, the phrase that some theologians use is that we are curved in on ourselves, or curved in on the earth. And what we do is we concern ourselves with our things, and not with the things of God. That is the natural pattern of humanity. We were created in the image of God. We were created to love God, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, but something went wrong with our hearts, and we have proven over the course of human history, not to be able to fix it ourselves. We need help. We need the Messiah. So the passage of scripture we're going to look at today is from Isaiah 52 and 53. It was written some 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, but it's amazing how much detail it gives about him. So this is one of those prophecies in the Old Testament that you could look at it and say, wow, God really knew what he was doing. He told us ahead of time what he was doing. In fact, it's a good place to bring non-believers to, to, to read this passage to them and to say, who's this talking about? Because they would probably tell you, this passage is talking about Jesus. And then you can tell them, well, this was written 700 years before Jesus came. So we're going to look at this passage. Um, it's an important passage in the Bible. It's quoted at least seven times in the New Testament, as well as a bunch of other places where it's alluded to. It tells a powerful story of what God has done to rescue us from our sin. 
It's a very poetic passage. There, there are 15 verses broken into five sections of three verses each. So that's how we're going to walk through this passage in those five sections. So the first one I would like to read is Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Now the word Messiah, uh, in my title of the sermon, doesn't actually show up in our passage today. Instead what we have is the word servant in our passage. You can see it right there in, in verse 13. That was Isaiah's preferred word to talk about the one that God would send to do God's will. Now, it's interesting though because Israel was, the nation of Israel was supposed to be that servant. But Israel, just like us, failed repeatedly. So God sent someone else. He sent a perfect servant, one who would be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But it's amazing how quickly it turns because in verse 14, that servant who was raised and lifted up was treated very poorly by those he came to serve. The people were appalled at him. He was disfigured and beaten beyond the point where he didn't even look human anymore. Isn't that amazing? Talking about our Messiah, beaten to the point of you would look at him and say, who is that? God's servant came to do God's will, but he was killed. Now the result of this is interesting in verse 15, that the message of him would go out, that even those, um, it says there, um, those who were not told will see, and, and what was not heard would be understood. So this message goes out into the world, people hear it, Will they receive it? That's the key question as we move on to the next passage, 53 verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, according to verse 1, there's this question about whether the people believed this message. And you could say that that's the crucial question in our passage today. The, the message has gone out. Will it be received by faith? God sent his servant. Will we believe? And then in verse 2, we see what this servant looked like. And the answer is that he looked very ordinary. The descriptions of a tender shoot coming out of dry ground describe something pretty ordinary, not something that you would look at and marvel. And it, and it goes on to say that he, his physical appearance lacked beauty or majesty, and it says that there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So you could say that Jesus didn't look the part. And, and we saw that when Jesus actually came to earth some 700 years later. The, the people were expecting a conquering king. And then here came this, this person who was born in the, the backwoods part of Israel. He didn't look the part. Even though he was God the Son, he took on human flesh and became a servant, just like it says in Philippians 2.7, that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And it's important that he was made in human likeness because remember, 
the problem with our world was humanity. It was the human heart. So in response to our problem, God sent his son, and his son became human. And it's important that we remember that Jesus was 100% God, but also 100% human. He didn't stop becoming God in order to come to earth, but also it's important to remember that he really was human. And and that's going to be super important as we think about the sacrifice that he offered for us, which we'll get to in a little bit. So, how would he be received? Now remember, he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what the last book of the Bible calls him. And if we were coming up a story about the coming of a king, we we might think of, what, parades, uh, 24-hour news, lauding him, gifts being given to him. But the picture in Isaiah 53 is very different. Look at verse 3 again. He was despised and rejected. I like how the Apostle John said it in John 1, 10 through 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The problem with the human heart was so bad that when our king came, he was despised and rejected. Now, getting back to Isaiah 53.3, that word despised is a word that's used in the Bible when people were sifting through the plunder. So think about Israel has just won a battle and their enemies are laying defeated on the battlefield. And sometimes what they would do is they would go out in that battlefield then and take the plunder. And what would they do? They would look for the things that were of value and they would take them with them. But those other things that they considered to have no value or little value, they just leave behind. So they're, they're looking at some stuff and like, sweet, I'll take that. An iPhone, sweet, I'll take that. I don't, I don't think they had those, but, uh, but then they'd look at some of the other things and just be like, eh, I don't need that. We'll just leave that to, to rot with the dead bodies. That's the word despised. That's what humanity did to Jesus when he came. They looked at him and said, eh, I don't need that. But even though he was despised, he did something amazing for us. And I want to read verses 4 through 6 now. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in verse 4, we see that as Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, he was considered stricken by God. Now what that means is that some people thought that Jesus got what he deserved. There's this thinking that if God allowed Jesus to suffer, that, that God must have been okay with it. And remember, that's what the people who watched Jesus die, that's what they thought. Remember how some of the people at the cross mocked Jesus? There's one place in Matthew 27 where some people said, let God rescue him now if he wants him. They were mocking our Savior. But amazingly, it it goes on. Uh, Jesus did not respond to the mocking like we might have. How, How do you respond when someone mocks you? Do you you think about their best interests? Well, that's what Jesus was doing. And in verses 5 through 6, 
It's so powerful as we consider what we deserved, but what Jesus did for us. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, like it says there. And here, again, some 700 years before it happened, we have a prophecy that is fulfilled in crucifixion. He was pierced like the nails pierced him. We had all earned punishment due to our sin, but our punishment fell on him. And as it says there, by his wounds we are healed. So think about the wounds that Jesus received uh, from being nailed on the cross or the wounds that came earlier as he was flogged and beaten. As it says there in verse 6, we all had gone astray. We were the wandering sheep. And as we think about the wandering sheep, I don't want you to think about a flock of sheep inside a nicely fenced-in area and one of the sheep just kind of you know, wanders off a little bit to get some of the nice grass inside the fence. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about the rebellion in which we had gone our own way. The Bible often talks about paths. There's a path that God wants us to take, And there's another path of our own choosing that every single one of us had taken in rebellion as shown by our sin. Now, we might not have said that we were walking away from God, but that is what we had done in our sin. Every single one of us, we all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. As a result, our sin penalty hung over our heads. We had already proven ourselves worthy of death and eternal separation, but Jesus took our penalty. Look again at the end of verse 6 where it says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquity was a bad deal. It's one of those words for sin. There's a verse in Isaiah 59:2 that's really been standing out to me lately. It says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Let me repeat that. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. That was us. We had all sinned. We had all earned a penalty. We had all earned separation from God that would have lasted for the rest of eternity. We deserved punishment. We had gone astray. But look what it says in verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus substituted himself for us. That's why he came as a human. And as we think about, you know, why is it that God chose this way to save us? Could could God have done it some other way? Well, think of the beauty of this one. It was human sin that messed up the world. That was why the fall came. That is why the curse came. That is why we see in our hearts so many evidences of us going astray. And what did God do? He sent Jesus, who took on human flesh for us. And as a human, he was able to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. But as God, he was able to live a sinless, perfect life, so that the life that he offered could be an unblemished sacrifice. Jesus died for us. Now, I want you to remember something of major importance in the study of the Old Testament. The, the penalty for sin is death. That's why there are all the animal sacrifices. You ever read the Old Testament and been like, okay, I get the picture. They were supposed to offer, offer animal sacrifices when they sinned. Well, they really were. 
Those sacrifices we read in the New Testament were reminders of sin. And the book of Hebrews tells us they were reminders of sin because they didn't have the power to take away sin completely. That's why they had to be repeated. But when Jesus came as a perfect sacrifice, he was the once for all sacrifice for us. His life for ours, his death for ours. And in this we see what one theologian called God's power at its greatest. So think about that. What would you call the greatest power of God? Maybe you think about his power in creating the world. Maybe you think about his power in uh, separating the Red Sea so his people could walk through. Maybe you think about his power in sending a worldwide flood to erase humankind from the earth except for eight people. Well, as powerful as those things are, perhaps the greatest power of God is when he took the wickedness of humanity and placed it on his son so that we could be saved. Let's move on then to verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here the picture is of a lamb being led to slaughter. But Jesus didn't defend himself or put up a fight. Remember that in the Gospels? With the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, they asked him, they practically begged him to defend himself. And what did he do? He was silent. Or think of it this way. Uh, Jesus reminded us in Matthew 26:53, when he was being arrested that he could have called for more than 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him. All Jesus had to do would have been to speak up and say, Father, rescue me. But what was Jesus? Silent. Because he knew that he came to die for us. Verses 8 through 9 clearly describe somebody who died and was buried. And again, the prophecy is so clear. About 700 years ahead of time, we are told precise details even of where he would be buried in the grave of a rich man. And that prophecy came true as Jesus was buried in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. So what do we see in verses 7 through 9? Well, it wasn't what people expected. They expected a conquering king to deliver them from their enemies. And think about all the enemies that Israel had over the years. They had Egypt, they had the Philistines, they had Assyria, they had Babylon, and on and on and on. But think about it. Sometimes they were delivered from those people, right? They went into exile, but they also went out of exile. They lost some battles, but they won some battles. What happened in their hearts through all of it? Were their hearts changed? When they saw God miraculously deliver them, were their hearts changed? No. They kept falling into the same sinful patterns. They, just like us, needed somebody to conquer our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and death and the devil. And that's what Jesus did as the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus in John 1.29? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Similarly, the, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, calls Jesus a lamb. In 5.6, he's described as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Isn't that interesting? In heaven, he was the lamb who looked as if he had been slain. And he was standing in the center of the throne. And that's important because the one on the throne is the one who receives worship. And in Revelation 5.13, it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The Lamb of God came to save us and he is worthy of worship. He is the suffering servant. Yet he's also the conquering king. Not like the people expected but he was. And let's take a look at how he conquered then in the last three verses of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So in verse 10 we see that it was God's plan to have Jesus be our guilt offering. In the Old Testament, and you can read about this in Leviticus 5 and 6, the guilt offering was to be offered for people who had sinned. When they became aware of a sin that was in their life, they could offer an animal as the guilt offering. So Jesus offered himself as our guilt offering, and he died for us, but he did not stay dead. And these verses here, 10 through 12, this is one of the great places to go. If somebody ever asks you, where do we see resurrection in the Old Testament? Maybe some people would claim that that's just something that the New Testament made up. Well, it's not. Because look at what we see in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, after he died, the servant will see his offspring and prolong his days. Similarly, in verse 11, after he dies, he will see and be satisfied. And it says that he will justify many. And then in verse 12, it talks about the spoils that he will get, the spoils of victory. Now, I don't know much about the spoils of victory, but I do know that you don't give them to dead people, nor do dead people see, nor do they pro prolong their days. So what we see here in Isaiah 53 was death as a guilt offering followed by resurrection. This is God's plan to save us from sin, told to us 700 years before it came about. And I just want to focus on one part of that salvation now. We go back to verse 11, it, that phrase there, my righteous servant will justify many. Justify is a legal term. It means to declare someone not guilty. Justify is also from the same root word that that word righteous comes from. So the righteous servant will make it so that we can be declared righteous. Now how can that be? We have all sinned. We have all gone astray. How could we stand before an all-knowing God and be declared righteous? Well, it's an act of mercy because Jesus took our place and offered himself as our substitute. He took our sin penalty. And there's this amazing double transaction that goes on. Sometimes it's called double imputation. 
It's a, it's a transaction in which two different things happen. The first thing that happens is that our sin penalty is placed on Jesus. He died for us to pay our penalty. But amazingly, the second part of this transaction is that the righteousness of Jesus is placed on us so that as we stand before God in judgment, he is able to declare us righteous, just like his son is righteous. This is the gospel message, again, proclaimed 700 years before Jesus came. We can be adopted into God's family as his children because of what his son did for us to take our place. It is not that we figured it out or that we became good enough on our own. Again, our pattern was one of straying away from God. And those people who would say, well, we'll figure it out, the pattern of human history is what we figure out is how to get further away from God. But when we come to Christ, we are forgiven and declared righteous. This is what it means when it says in Romans 5 that God is the God who justifies the wicked. I want you to think about that phrase. God is the God who justifies the wicked. Now, normally we would think that a judge is a bad judge if he did that. If uh, and I want you to think about a, an example. Let's say that uh, somebody killed one of your friends and the judge knew it and all the evidence was pointing that way. But if the judge would then declare that person to be not guilty, we would be outraged. But I want you to think about that in just a little bit different terms. I want you to think about us standing before a holy God in judgment. And it is clear that we have committed crime after crime after crime against him. And the judge knows it. Our only hope at that point would be to throw ourselves at the mercy of the judge and beg for forgiveness. Praise the Lord, our God is merciful. And he sent his son to do just that for us. That's who our Messiah is. Jesus Christ, the servant who God sent to pay the penalty for our sins. So the conclusion is that we need the Messiah. I asked at the beginning of my sermon if the human heart is basically good or evil. If the human heart is basically good, then perhaps we don't need a Savior. Perhaps we could just figure it out on our own. But all of human history says otherwise. Same as the pattern of our lives has shown otherwise. You see, it's not just the really bad people who have proven otherwise. It's all of us. Like it said in verse 6 of our passage today, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We need Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus came for us. Jesus died our death so that we could live with him forever. We're brought into an eternal relationship with God. And it's not just heaven that we have to look forward to? Did you know that in Ephesians 1 it talks about the resurrection power of God? So think about that. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much power was at work when God raised Jesus from the dead? We call that at least a 10, right? That same kind of power is at work in us right now. Not just waiting for us in heaven. The, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ at work in us right now for God to help us to live the kinds of lives that he wants us to live. And we're going to talk next week about the kind of transformation that God will do in our hearts to help us to live the right kind of life. But for now, it's amazing to think about what our Savior, the Lamb of God, did for us. 
And, and one of the takeaways from today, I hope, is that we would worship him. In fact, I was thinking about that. Uh, I feel like a lot of the things that I've said in my sermon today are things that many of you have known for a very long time. And, and what's the takeaway? Well, let me just back up the train for just a second. For any of you out there who are unsure if your sin has ever been forgiven, come to Jesus right now. God sent Jesus for you that you could be forgiven. Throw yourself at his mercy. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. And walk with him for the rest of your life. But then for those of us who are walking with Jesus, what should our takeaway be from this sermon? I think it should be one of thankfulness. Of worship. Remember the lamb standing in the center of the throne and all of creation bows before him and worships him. That's what our hearts should do today. And we're going to head right into a time of communion now. And as we head into that time of communion, I want us to rejoice in the death of Jesus for us. I, I'm going to flip to 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, this is the passage I almost always read from when we do communion. And I just want you to, to think again about what Jesus said. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Jesus knew our problem. He knew where our lives were headed. And where were we headed? We were headed to eternity apart from God because our iniquities had separated us from our God. Unless Jesus came for us, we would be dead in our sins. Again, I, we think about um, a former congregant of ours, Alison Moline, who, who passed away this week. Um, for her, it was a problem with her blood, that there, were, there was something in her blood that caused an infection, that, that caused her body to die. And, and we think about how every single one of us has, it's going to be something for us unless Christ comes first. There's going to be something that takes us. And, and it's an interesting picture to think about. Every one of us had sin, sinful blood coursing through our veins. Spiritually speaking, it would have ended us. And not ended is a bad phrase because it would have separated us from God for all eternity. But again, I think about Allison and boy, the, if, you, if you knew her, you knew that she knew Jesus. And I just want you all to know that we need Jesus. We need Jesus because one day we're going to be like that. Again, unless Jesus comes first, we're going to be to the point where we, we are going to know for sure that we need an answer to death. Sometimes I like to call death the last apologetic because if you do not have an answer for death, you do not have an answer. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. His death paid our death penalty. Every one of us earned that death penalty. But every one of us can be cleansed and forgiven by the death of Jesus. His death in our place. In Isaiah, it's, I've talked about how the, the pronouns are wonderfully arranged in that, in that the, it was our iniquity, it was we who had gone astray, and our punishment was placed on him. I want you to rejoice in that today. For all of you who know Jesus, I want you to know he is worthy of our worship. The one who gave his life for us, may he be eternally praised as our Lord of Lord, Lords and our King of Kings.